This is episode 212 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Rogue Dogs and Their Wildlife Detection Work. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am so delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Jennifer Hartman with me, and I'll introduce her. She's a founder and director of Rogue Detection Teams, a conservation dog program operating worldwide. She began her career in 2009 when she met a shelter dog named Max, a spicy, quirky Australian blue healer mix. And Max introduced Jennifer to the amazing talents of working alongside detection dogs, but more importantly, he showed her the life-altering relationships that those who work alongside our canine counterparts for wildlife conservation initiatives form. Alongside Max, Scooby, and her other canine colleagues, Jennifer has worked on projects spanning a diversity of environments and species, from hot African savannas searching for big cats to steamy jungles in Southeast Asia, unearthing data on pangolin and throughout the United States and Canada. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Happy to be here. (laughs) I have to tell you, when I discovered Rogue Dogs, the organization roguedogs.org, I said to a friend of mine, I'm so excited. I found this organization that uses rescue dogs for detection work in unearthing scat related to the red fox. And he just stared at me and he said, well, that's your jam right there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really true. It likes hits all these buttons of things that I'm extremely interested in. So I've been so looking forward to our conversation and uh, yeah, really excited to hear more about road dogs and my jam. So yeah. So first tell me, how did road dogs get started? Sure. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to also share that it was really fun to get your email uh, because I didn't know that there was someone so interested and invested in working dogs kind of in the Eastern Sierras. And I was like, what? How did we not know about this? Yeah, so it was right. Also, uh-huh. also kind of our jam. We've, we've um, had several projects along the Eastern Sierras looking for a, a lot of different species. So it's really neat to learn about your book. Um, so anyways, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. How did Rogue Dog start? Well, it's been an interesting journey. We're actually quite young. We're only two years old. But that being said, like you shared in the introduction, um, I've actually been in this field for about 15 years now. And uh, the co-director, um, fellow bounder Heath Smith, 
he's actually been in this field for 20 plus years. So we were with another program before founding the rogue detection teams. Um, And what kind of launched our desire to branch out on our own was um, basically our intense passion for fieldwork. And this field has many different aspects to it. And the program we were with was kind of um, moving more towards uh, the illegal wildlife products searching. So that would be more container work, you know, in ports looking for maybe shark fin and, and ivory and, and pangolin, which is very important work. And there um, are lots of detection teams around the world doing that. Um, our passion is more in the field, though, and our specialty is working across myriad landscapes, hiking sometimes 15, 18 miles a day, backpacking um, and living out of our cars kind of rugged and remotely. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) we thought, hmm, is this the best fit for us? So we we wanted to continue the work that we felt we were really good at, and that's why we uh, launched Robes in uh, 2019. Yeah, it's amazing how much you've done uh, for only being two years old. I kind of missed that, I guess, when I was reading all about it. Yeah, you're brand new, practically. Yeah, yeah. Some of the work, like when I was in Africa and Nepal and Vietnam, that was with our previous um, program. So Rogues has been mainly domestic because, of course, COVID hit right. You can't travel. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right after we launched. And so um, we've had to really limit um, where we've been able to travel, unfortunately. And I just want to ask a personal question, if you don't mind. And if it's too personal, you can tell me to move on. But I was curious, like, what what got you originally interested in doing this kind of detection work? Oh, yeah, that's not too personal. Um, Actually, it's it's, you know, my origin story for this. And um, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's just, um, it's attached to to Max, who you shared also in the introduction. You know, 15 years ago, this this field wasn't that well known. And I, I actually, it's not that well known still, but it is gaining a lot more traction these days. Um, but even back then, I, I had no idea. You know, I read Gary Paulson books growing up about sled dogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I would love to be a musher someday. And can you imagine that? And I just thought that was a world for someone else, you know, also, you know, all the, the horse whispers out there. I, I was, a, you know, as many young girls are, I loved horses growing up mm-hmm. and I just thought, oh, to, to be able to develop a relationship with an animal on a level beyond just their, I mean, pets are amazing. And we, form incredible relationships with our pets. But I, I've always felt like the the dog mushers and um, people who, you know, work with horses, there's something even more. And I thought that was for other people, you know, and same with the science field. I thought that's for other people too. I'm a, actually an English literature major. <laughs> By background. Aha, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. we're uncovering all kinds of things here. <laughs> yeah. And although that sounds really strange to be working in as a field biologist, um, I have to admit that, and it's another story, so I won't go into it, but there is actually a lot of uses um, for someone, you know, with this background in this field, surprisingly, in terms of like writing and communications and uh, reports. Sure. Oh, yeah. English majors rule. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but to get back to the 
behind the scenes story. I was studying Northern Spotted Owls. I had volunteered with the Student Conservation Association and they had connected me with a woman studying this endangered species in Northern California. And she worked for the Center for Conservation Biology at the University of Washington. And her project was, it had, I had been on that for three years. I'd become a crew lead and I, I loved spotted owls. Like yeah. I just wanted to really cool. at this point, mm-hmm. yeah, like just make my career all about spotted owls. And I thought mm-hmm. I'd go to grad school. I thought I'd become a doctor, you know, like all these things. Uh-huh. And her project was ending, but she, she knew a researcher who was continuing the work, but wanted to utilize detection dogs. And this was the program that I was initially in, um, the conservation canines. And I thought, okay, as an English literature major, someone giving me a recommendation to continue spotted owl work, I can't turn this down. But do I want to work with dogs? I mean, I wanted to be a dog musher, but what I'd heard about the conservation detection dogs, I was like, they're crazy, they're wild, they're, oh, you know, interesting. Pets. And, you know, I'm a cat person. I, I like to read oh. books. <laughs> in some quiet corners. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know if this is for me, but um, it was only supposed to be four months. So I thought, well, I know the owls, so I'll give it a shot. Uh And um, sure enough, the first three days arriving in, you know, overcast, wet, cold, um, Western Washington, I was like, not for me. I mean, there was 22 dogs in the program. They are all intense, high drive, fetch obsessed dogs. And any new person that walked through the kennel, they would just bark their heads off. And I was like, I don't think this is for me. (laughs) But um, one day I was given the dogs a break. And it wasn't that I didn't like the dogs. It was just, it was just a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those dogs can be very intimidating. Mm -hmm. You know, those high drive dogs. Yeah, they're strong. And yeah, they can be kind of scary. And the thing to, to remember and think about too is, and this gets more into just the philosophy, but the dogs are highly trained, but the, at the same time, we don't teach a ton of obedience. So obedience yeah. is not, we do, we need them to listen to our commands. That's for sure. I mean, it's all about safety, but it's safe boundaries. And what we're actually doing is, is instilling and working with their instincts yeah. and, and then harnessing that fetch drive when we're out in the field. So these dogs, you know, we didn't teach them, okay, you can jump bump on us. That's fine. And you can have this exuberance for life and you can, um, have this, you know, joie de vivre mm-hmm. and we're not going to, you know, nip that on the butt and make you heal and, you know, make you do all these things that are more for, you know, different fields, mm-hmm. um, maybe for bomb detection or working in a, um, an airport that that's not necessarily our MO. So, um, Anyways, that's why there is all this, you know, that we call ourselves the the rapscallions and, and motley crew for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, uh, a few days in, we were building a, a fence around the kennel yard. And one of the dogs was just out on a break um, to stretch his legs. He just started following me around. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think I was special. I didn't have any connection at all with any of the dogs yet. I had only been there a brief time and I was thinking about leaving. So I wasn't giving off very happy vibes of this is my dream job. And oh my gosh, I'll do anything. Um, but this little blue healer just, he was just there every time I turned around and something sparked in me. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know what it was. Like I said, I wasn't anything 
special or different. And, um, but there he was anytime I turned around and I, I, I think I just fell for him immediately right then. Isn't that cool? What a great <laughs> story. Yeah. That's giving me chills. Neat. And I honestly, I just, I would do anything to stay with him. And I knew I wasn't going to work him on a project immediately. He was, he was special in the fact that he needed to gain a lot of confidence. Mm. I was so brand new. I needed to gain confidence. So I actually didn't work with this blue healer uh, for a few projects in. Um, but every time a new project came up, uh, I asked, can I work max? Right. Can I work max? One day I got to, and it's, you know, I, he's the reason why I'm in this field. And he's also the reason why when things get rough and tough, I want to stay in this field because knowing that there are dogs out there like him Mm -hmm. kind of make me want to keep adopting those dogs into this field. So he's the reason he's my backstory. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Your origin story. Yeah. I love that. So did, 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 um, conservation canines, is that the right name for them? The previous Mm -hmm. organization, did Mm -hmm. they use rescue dogs? Correct. Yes. Oh, they did also. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seemed like kind of a novel idea to me, but, but maybe it isn't. So, yeah. So, so tell me why rescue dogs make good detection dogs or don't. Sure. And um, there are other programs. I mean, some groups around the world want purebreds and they want puppies, but there are other groups like ours, working dogs for conservation and pack leader uh, would also adopt fetch obsessed dogs from shelters and rescues and search dog foundation the National Search Dog Foundation, who we've actually adopted some of our dogs from if they didn't make it in the the, um, search and rescue field. Mm. What makes these dogs incredible, um, you know, because we we talk a lot about creating that bond, like I said, um, with Max. And I think people think, oh, you have to have that bond from puppyhood up. But what I have found Mm. with these adult dogs that we adopt they're fetch obsessed first and foremost. So they don't make great pets in a home environment. They're insane. If they don't have a release for this energy, it can manifest as what people would call destructive behavior, but it doesn't mean that they are destructive dogs or aggressive, but they might chew furniture. They might um, express some frustration with people. They may not care about people because all they care about is the ball. So you, you know, people don't feel like they can make really Um, intense emotional connections with them. Mm -hmm. But what we have found is when we adopt these adult dogs into our program, um, we adopt adult because we know that that fetch drive then is not puppyhood playfulness. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's an incredible drive. They will do anything uh, (laughs) for this one game or one chance to play ball. And what we found when we bring these dogs in is, is when we give them that outlet something changes uh, both in their personality and um, just in the way they hold themselves. They become more confident. They become more happy. I mean, you would look at a dog who's insane and think they're happy because all they want to, you know, they're just slobbering at the mouth and their eyes are insane, you know, really intense and dilated. But for us, that actually shows anxiety, just a ton of, um, in a way, stress. But when, when these dogs are able to, to get out each and every day and have that release we can form those bonds. We we can develop really strong relationships because now we're a unit. They know that through us and with us, 
is this potential inability to get to do the thing that makes them most happy in the world, which is to play fetch. But then they also realize that there are other things in life to be happy about. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I feel like um, it's giving them a new lease on life. And that's the honestly the most fulfilling part of this work. Um, it's the most tangible part of this work is getting to adopt um, these shelter dogs and give them um, this new lease on life. Yeah, it definitely broadens their horizons. Right. And I was also thinking it's probably a little bit uh, too woo, but you know, it also gives them a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a, I imagine that, you know, dogs are awfully smart. I imagine that, that some of that, they become aware of some of that, right. That and sort of feeling as though they're a participant in something important. And um, yes. yeah, like you say that, that, I mean, we love being part of a team, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of animals love being part of a team. Yeah. And I feel like they finally find their place, you know, they're accepted and they're not, they're not being told no or, or heal right. or stop or, you know, right. or, you know, working with people who might be obsessed because, you know, that's just frustrating to, to try to manage or handle a dog of this um, energy level. But for us, that's perfect. We love that. It's just a joy to watch them kind of unravel like a butterfly, I like to say, because mm. they really do come out of their chrysalis. Interesting. I remember for one of the dogs that I wrote about in the working dogs was also a blue healer, also a mix. And, um, you know, he was just king of the corral. I mean, he, you know, he bossed everybody around. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he was definitely a high energy. Yeah. Just interested in everything, go all over the place and be in charge of everything. Are blue healers particularly, or do those tend to be dogs that you kind of have an eye out for? Do they tend to be this kind of personality? Oh, that's such a good question because there's kind of two parts to it. The first part, the the one thing that we look for is this fetch obsession. Mm -hmm. And so if all they want to do is play ball all day long, whatever breed, whatever size, we will evaluate them. So we actually have dogs who are <laughs> Chihuahua mixes and Papillon mixes. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and when I first started, um, we, it was mainly a entire team of black uh, Labradors. Yeah. But we had a few, we had very few healers in, in the pack, but what's happened over the years as this field has become more well-known and as you know, the work that we have done has become more well-known. People have seen that we are one of the few programs to work with um, cattle dogs. So we will actually, they will seek us out to be like, I have this cattle dog at this rescue or this shelter. Are you guys adopting? And so slowly over the years, what we've seen um, is just that we tend to get a lot of these dogs because people realize we're one of the few programs out there that work with the healers of the world. And, but that being said, the second part is we do have a special affinity <laughs> for them. Mm-hmm. I worked with both a black lab and Max was a healer mix. So I, I love the pointy and the floppy ear uh, crew. <laughs> I don't discriminate. Um, right. But <laughs> Diversity is <my>, always good. <laughs> yeah. But my, I remember when Filson arrived um, in our program, I fell in love with him immediately without even knowing him just because he was a blue healer and he mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of Max. So I do think that we have a soft spot mm-hmm. for healers and that's maybe why we, we now have several in our program. 
Yeah. So tell me about Filson. Oh, <laughs> Filson is, you know, I, I always think he's a puppy because he's just so exuberant and happy. Um, and he's little and his eyes are like a Disney character. <laughs> yeah. He, the, yeah the, the people listening to this podcast are going to go have to check out the photos of him because he's such a character. I mean, it just shows in all his photos. I don't, of course I'm biased, right? But I love all of our dogs. And in some ways I do wonder if Filson's one of our cutest. I mean, again, I know I might be biased, but <laughs> He's definitely he, cute. <laughs> he is a um, seven-year-old healer mix. His story is a little different from our others. He He's still a rescue dog. But um, so we mainly get all of our dogs from shelters and rescues. But a few are owner releases. Mm-hmm. And Filson actually was in another detection dog program that had a few too many dogs. And they just asked, you know, are you... Are you all looking to adopt right now? And so that's how we brought Filson on. But they brought Filson on from as an owner release from a Craigslist ad. And it was this older couple from what I know. And that's the other thing is a lot of the stories of our dogs are backstories are just hazy. We don't we don't know mm-hmm. often what they've experienced in their life. And so Filson, I believe, was uh, with an older couple in Southern California and I think he was just kept outside in, um, in a ch- you know, in chain link fence near a school. I don't think that was really great for, you know, healers, <laughs> you know, hi- hi- kids coming by. I'm sure that was a very anxious situation for him. And um, he doesn't have many teeth. He's so he's pretty young, but his teeth seem to have been really ground down pretty far. So he might have chewed at the chain link fence. He might have oh. chewed at rocks in his anxiety. We don't know. Oh. But every, you know, since we've, we've brought him on, he's just gone on so many different projects and he's a, he's just a joy to work with. He's afraid of stumps. <laughs> he thinks they look like maybe wild animals. Um, he has absolutely no prey drive, which is rare in healers. So part of this method is it's non-invasive. None of our dogs, you know, chase wildlife but that doesn't mean that some of the dogs don't come in with, you know, that instinct. And it's it's part of developing that relationship between what we call our handlers bounders, creating this bounder relationship with the dogs um, and, earn, you know, learning and earning their trust. And then, you know, realizing that we're a team and we that's not what we do out there. But with Filson, it was really quite easy because right. he's afraid of a lot of that. But surprisingly, he's not afraid to do some of the crazy things we do in the field, like climb mountains and, you know, backpack and camp and sleep in hammocks and tents. Um, he's and not timid. Warm. He's not a yeah, timid dog. Exactly. So you're distinguishing here between that fetch drive and the prey drive, which I guess I thought were kind of the same. Yeah, I think you're right. I've heard it said, share it as the same thing. But for us, yeah. what I've noticed at least like Scooby, for example, was insanely obsessed with the ball, but he had absolutely no prey drive. We were in Africa and a group of Impala were jumping over the road behind him. And he was sitting perfectly in the road at a cheetah scat, could care less, didn't even put me here. <laughs> this and, is the important thing. Yeah. Don't get distracted. <laughs> and uh, one time, you know, he went, we were serving for African lion, cheetah, leopard, and wild dog and hyena. 
And he went over and sat at what we believe was a, a lion scat. We never found out um, because it was near a bull elephant. And so we just kind of had to wait it out and hope that he would come back to us because I'm like, we can't go over there, but he didn't care. So I distinguish. Yeah, you've seen it. Because there are some dogs who want to, who have an interest, obviously, in chasing squirrels or 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 deer or whatnot. And we just work with them to be like, that's not actually what we're out here to do. And they're like, oh, the ball, right. Let's go do this. And that's really fun to develop that relationship and see them you know, turn that interest towards us. And, but then other dogs, we don't have to do that with at all. So I I make that distinction, but I don't know technically if it's called a prey drive because they're chasing, you know, a moving object. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the things that you discover the more you study dogs is there are finer distinctions than you thought, right? They're, they're, they're very complex animals. And so sometimes we, make generalizations that then yeah, an individual dog will point out that that, yeah, that's a generalization and a stereotype. And that doesn't hold true for all dogs. They're, they're just fascinating animals, just fascinating. Yeah. And I think what I, I've loved about this field too, is that, you know, I didn't come into it with a ton of dog experience and we found that that's really, it actually helps because mm-hmm. if if a person say has had a lot of agility or obedience classes with either their dog or just because they wanted to work with dogs, um, we found that it's challenging to switch over to the philosophy or methodology that we share because it's less about programming a dog to do something and more like I was sharing earlier how can we get on their page? How can we communicate with them on their level? What it what is it that they are telling us? And in a way, then that's that's what we mean by creating that that bounder relationship. I've found that because I don't know a lot of the terminology in the dog world, in a way, I can either sound you know possibly ignorant in some circles, but I love that with the dogs we've brought into the program and that I've been lucky enough to work with. Um, I felt it hasn't really hindered me in learning to, to, to speak with them for lack of a better term. So, you know, everyone has a different take and this, this is just ours. Um, but I'm, (laughs) I'm full in. (laughs) So it's really interesting to, to talk to you about this, because I think a lot of times our approach to dogs, or at least a lot of the people that I've talked to who work with dogs is a, is about obedience, but also about dominance, right? That the human knows best and the human, the human sets the rules. Whereas you're really coming at it in a, from a completely different perspective where it's more of that, the bounder. And I want to ask you about that word hangs back more and kind of lets the dog do its thing which, yeah, it's a very different approach. Yeah. But that being said, even though we, we hang back, it's still very much in tune. And so it's learning that what, what it is that they're telling us with their behavior. So it's allowing them to be independent. So part of what I worked on with Max was teaching him to be confident. And that was by being incredibly supportive. And he, he used to be a healer, right? He would be right there 
beside me. He wouldn't range. And one of the the early oh. folks in the program was like, this dog won't make it. Oh, wow. You know, my colleague, Heath was like, no, he, he can do this and we're going to give him more time. And sure enough, it just took either the right person or the right project where the more these dogs get out and are positively rewarded with the thing that they love most, but also the more that they have a relationship with a human who loves them and, and respects them. Like you said, it's not about uh, any, I'm definitely coming in. I wasn't, I didn't know anything. Right. So there was no dominance there. There was no, I know more than you actually I'm being taught by you. This is a whole new world for me. And Max was my first teacher and Scooby was, you know, another amazing teacher. And if not for them, um, I would have left the field long ago, realizing that this wasn't a field for me, Mm -hmm. but through that developing that relationship, I learned that, you know, Max had a very subtle way of sniffing for and alerting two samples. And I think that might be why a lot of folks don't work with healers um, in in this field Mm. is because they're not, you know, we're not trying to program a dog. And in some, some of, some of this field, people want to, you know, they might utilize clickers and they, they might expect a certain response always, always, always. And they're just like, grinding that in kind of like, uh, over and over repetitive, repetitive. And that doesn't mean that we don't need a response and that we don't require some sort of alert, but for a lot of our dogs that we let them after we, um, teach them what it is, we then let them do what's comfortable for them. So Mm -hmm. for Max, he would actually want to sniff. He'd find the odor and you could see that he found the odor, but then he'd want to work around, sniff all the other spots. And then he would circle around and we're talking very slowly and come and lay down by the original scent. And that was his way, I think, in his brain of cataloging things, making sure he was being a perfectionist and then being like, here it is. Whereas I think if he was in any other program, that alert would have automatically failed him. And I believe that had I been in any other program Mm. and they had told me, well, he needs to have an immediate response. I then would have been like, oh my gosh, I need to tell him to sit and and be kind of upset that he's leaving this and be like, no, this is what we want right here, right now and not let him be him. And I guess that's what I I've love about um, being in this program, particularly um, Heath has taught all of our bounders and dogs over the years is that ability to learn what that dog likes to do. Mm-hmm. And Scooby, for example, he liked to stand. He was too anxious for the ball. So when we worked him in an exercise before leaving for the field, he had perfect sits, just amazing. But when you take him out into the field, he was just like, it's here. And what I learned is that because we teach our dogs on multiple odors, if there was a species that we weren't necessarily interested in for that particular project, but he had been trained on it before, but he knew that we weren't finding it for that project, (laughs) he would do a perfect sit. And so if it was up a really steep slope, for example, he was on grizzly bear and and black bear, but we didn't need it for this particular project. And he went up this really steep slope. And then I was like, no, let's keep going this way. Even though I could tell he was on an odor, but I knew what was up there. Like Mm -hmm. I knew the species we were looking for wouldn't be there. And he's like, nope. And he sat and he's like, I know that if I sit, I tell you to come up here. And I was like, ah, he did it. So I had to climb up there and sure enough, it was a bear poop. And I I still rewarded him because he's just, it was just great. Like he deserves that. That's amazing. Um, And it didn't take, you know, but what, 
five minutes in a hard uphill climb for out of our overall, you know, eight hour survey day for me to go up there and, and realize that he was just being amazing. And then we could keep going with our other stuff. So I think that wouldn't fly in a lot of different um, work or programs, mm-hmm. but that's kind of a bit of our philosophy there. So we're definitely working with them, even though we give them um, a bit more free reign to be themselves. And it's learning each of their intricacies um, on an individual basis. So, yeah, it strikes me that it is a little bit treating them as an individual instead of as a as a tool or a robot. Or mm-hmm. yeah, there's something interesting about that. Where does this word "bounder" come from? Yeah, um, <laughs> we noticed over the years that well, there are many various types of handlers, canine handlers around the world, doing lots, uh, just a variety of work. So it's a general term, right, for anyone who works with a dog. So that could be a trainer. That could be someone who works with a service dog. That could be someone who, you know, does bomb detection. What we found is that, one, this is such a unique a specified niche field. Um, but also we don't necessarily think of ourselves as dog trainers, um, or that we're handling the dogs. Yeah. In a way we, we want <laughs> the dogs are handling us almost mm-hmm. as much as we're teaching the dogs, this method they're teaching us too. And I, I've learned so much about the species that, um, we've been tasked to survey through for, through the dogs even though I can read the book about, about the, the species and we can gear each survey for that particular species, everyone thinks they know what it is we'll find about the animals out on that landscape. And time and time again, the, the dogs always blow us away. <laughs> what we learn. And it's like, no one knew this, right? Yeah. And so over the years, you know, we'd, we used it too. And, but in some of our discussions, we just started realizing that none of us really felt it, it described what we did. And it's hard to, we're not saying that um, handlers isn't a, a, a great word and that no one else can be a bounder. If anything, what we're trying to say is that maybe what and who handlers are, are bounders. And what we mean by that is that through adopting these adult dogs that, you know, everyone thinks you need a puppy to kind of uh, make that relationship. We are becoming bound to them. And in a way they're becoming bound to us. We, we are this team. And But the other thing is in our work specifically with wildlife conservation, uh, what drives us to do the, you know, to be on the road six to nine months a year, to live out of our cars or in a hammock or backpack and, you know, sometimes run out of food while we're waiting for resupply or all the crazy things that happen, leeches and humidity and three feet snow and all the things that we do, it's because we're bound to the environment too. And we are as much interested in the species that we are serving for on on a project as the researcher themselves. So we're not just like, oh, you want us to go find this? Great, we'll go find it. I don't really, you know, the dog will do its thing. We'll go out, we'll collect some data. Here you go. It's, we want to learn about that species too. And we, we, we want to find out where they are, what they're doing on that landscape. And so being, you know, a handler just didn't really encapsulate all of that. Um, and the other thing is, as we were developing rogues, we realized that as this field is growing, there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding the conservation detection dog field. And so we realized that we were also bound to this method mm-hmm. and wanting to share more about it as it's growing 
and so that folks realized more about it because, and I, I can see that you had an inquisitive look. So I'll, I'll just backtrack a little bit. Or, originally, a lot of the work is, is, um, might be published in research papers years after the actual work. And the dogs are just, you know, talked about as like scat dog or sniffer dog and not, you know, mentioned either sometimes by program or by individual. And it doesn't really talk so much about the methodology behind it. I mean, there are some papers out there, but those aren't necessarily our methods. So a lot of people will cite these different papers that are, you know, you know, from the, the late nineties and be like, okay, this is the method and this is how it's always done. So then if a person's going to go work with a dog on their own to do this, they're going to try to, you know, follow these, what's already been written. And um, we realized that there was just a lot more to be shared about how to work with dogs. And so that's what we mean by being bound to the method is people have different philosophies. Um, this is just one, but we're very passionate about sharing why rescue dogs um, can do this work, why fetch obsession and high drive is, is necessary for, you know, seeking data on endangered species and why the human counterpart is so critical to the method. Everyone focuses on the dog, but they don't look at the handler. What is the, the bounder's role really? And so when we bring new people in to learn this method, in a way it's teaching them then how, what it means to, and how to become a bounder. And that's what we mean by that word. It's bound to all three of those things. And as other folks have pointed out, which is pretty neat. Um, you know, we're bounding through, through the fields, you know, we're <laughs> right. out there literally <laughs> hiking, trudging, crawling, bounding, um, to do this work. So no, that's really great. Yeah. I'm picturing you out there now bound, <laughs> bounding around. Yeah. So to, yeah, to back up a little bit um, and get into more of the science of this, what are some of the things that dogs detect? Ooh, and this is the exciting part so much. I think we're only scratching the surface, especially mm. as this field grows. Um, originally, when we first started, Every single project was a proof of concept. Can dogs find this? Can dogs find that? Mm -hmm. And across the spectrum, it's yes. It's yes. So really, it's less about can dogs find this and more how do we utilize a detection dog's nose to find X species. Mm -hmm. So we might have started out, you know, looking for wolf and moose and people like, oh, well, you don't need to get a dog for that. Just walk some roads and trails. But the, the power of a detection dog is that they don't discriminate to, you know, in just one individual. So if a, if a dominant member of that particular species might be traveling roads and trails, sure, a person could go out and pick up data. But where are the subordinates in that landscape? Where are the, um, the transients? Where are the young members who may be shy and not uh, traveling these major routes? That's why a detection team is so important because we can go out and find where they're, you know, in a way where they're sleeping, where they're eating, where they're hunting, because they're not just eliminating on roads and trails. So when we, you know, first started with a lot of carnivore work, a lot of people just thought, okay, yeah, scat dogs. That's why they call them scat dogs and used for carnivore work. But then we started being asked, well, what about, you know, mustelids like Martin and Fisher and Mink who live in some really challenging habitats 
uh, whether it's a really steep drainage and they poop on logs or they poop under rocks and they're along river drainages that aren't necessarily the easiest for a person to move through. Well, yeah, sure. Let's put a detection dog on that. And then we started getting inquiries for caterpillar frass. So frass is caterpillar poop. Oh my. Um, <laughs> it's smaller. It's as yeah. tiny as pepper flakes. Oh, and wow. it's not that we wanted to collect the frass itself. It was more, the, so this is where it gets interesting. It's the question is, is this captive breeding program that we, you know, that this particular zoo is assisting this endangered species, is it working? Or are we just, you know, putting adults out there and they're not mating in the wild? The only way to know that is if you go at a certain time of year when they aren't releasing caterpillars to see if the previous year's efforts are doing anything. And so that's where you need the detection dogs. Can they find this frass? If you find the special feeding marks and the frass, then you know, yes, this is working. These efforts are important. We should continue doing this. And what was really exciting is locating um, larvae of this endangered species for the first time in the wild in over 40 years. Oh, That happened this year. And that's that's just been such an exciting and breakthrough for the pollinator world because now, now it opens up a whole new potential to learn about a life stage of an animal that, that they spend, you know, 80% of their life stage in, you know, in the larva stage um, that, that we don't know a lot about. So now dogs are being um, asked to locate, you know, bumblebee nests. We actually had, before we started rogues, we worked on a orca whale project. So finding floating whale poop before it would sink and people would ask, well, why do you care about whale poop? Just, you know, mark them with a, a tag and, you know, you can get all that, but that can be very invasive. Um, so the other thing about this method is it's non-invasive. Um, we don't, you know, we don't need to see the wildlife that we are serving. So one thing that's about the whale scat is we can, you can learn from the scat, their stress hormones, depending on the analyses that you run, you can learn reproductive status, stress hormones, diet, and a whole lot of other things. And this project learned that, you know, boat traffic is actually quite stressful for, for, for these whales. So we can collect that data. We can learn about this species and what's harming them by never actually having to drive up alongside them and dart them, you know, get a blood sample, all this other stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's what I find so brilliant about this, this method too, is leaving wildlife to be wild, but still learning so much about them that we, you don't realize that you can learn, you know, just from their scat. Well, that was one of the things that struck me in the articles about the red fox was DNA analysis now is so precise. They could tell the individual, uh, they could tell what other individuals that individual was related to. I mean, it was just a, you know, such an amazing amount of data that you could collect from SCAD. It's crazy. Yes. Oh, and this project is so fun to collaborate and work with. Dr. Kate Quinn with UC Davis on uh, she and the lab that she works with, um, the Mammalian Ecology Conservation Unit, have developed these um, methods to analyze the fox. And so there's a lot of different genetic labs out there, but to learn a lot of this information, each of these 
it's a separate component, right? So there's the dog work and then there's the genetic analysis. And um, I'm not the best person to talk to about it, but each of these labs have to develop um, different primers and to derive that information out of these scats. So there's so much you can learn from it, but that takes effort and expertise too. So the Red Fox work is a long-term project um, that wasn't using dogs initially. So what was really exciting is um, a lot of the early discoveries about where the species that was thought to be extinct um, was rediscovered, you know, and this has happened on a few different occasions as roadkill. And so then it launched this like, oh gosh, we need to learn more about this species. I can't believe they're still here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kate Quinn went out and would collect scats just visually and uh, of this, uh, you know, really rare species and would also utilize uh, volunteers in the region to go out and backpack and come back with some poops. And as they, you know, collected more and more, they could hone in on, on the different methodologies to pull a lot of this um, genealogical data out of it. And what's fascinating to me, if you read some of the, the her publications, is um, they were facing a population sink, meaning that one, they were, they were thought to be extinct. Then we realized that they weren't, or the community realized that they weren't. So then they started researching them, but then they realized that they were facing extinction still because there's probably fewer than 20 to 30 individuals out there. And they were all related because there's no other individuals coming in to provide any other DNA. And you can learn that from the scat. Mm -hmm. So what was really fascinating is then after she started using detection dogs, just because it just wasn't feasible for her to continue to go out there each and every year. Um, And so she's like, well, let's, let's think about detection dogs. So one of the years that we were out there, they learned from the scat that a new individual had moved in and this individual <laughs> fresh was blood. <laughs> but what fascinates me is this individual is all the way from Nevada. So from the uh, great basin. So if you imagine the Sierras and the great basin and one individual has the ability to, in a way, almost save an entire species, right. he traveled all this way. And now his genes are, are in this gene pool. And that's what I love about our work too, is just the stories that can be told. Like imagining this, um, he had to cross highways, he had to cross mountain ranges, he had to avoid predators and traps. And then he got to this one area in the entire Eastern Sierras where there happened to be a stronghold of his species. And now he's out there and he's helping, you know, his brethren. And I just... I just love that. And that's what mm-hmm. Kate and uh, the rest of her team can learn from the Scott. And it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. It sounds either like science fiction or Disney or yeah, a piece of American yes. literature, but, but it's real, right? It's true. Yeah. That, that's what's so exciting I, I think, about um, it. One article that I loved was called the, uh, a tale of two foxes. Mm. And it reminds me, you know, of the Charles Dixon, uh, Taylor Charles. Two Cities, right? Yes, thank you. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is like a, a story I could just sit down by the fire and read and be like, wow, uh-huh. <laughs> romance in the high Eastern Sierras, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember when there was a photograph of a red fox that at, that at the time, I maybe it's the way the media presented it, but I thought that was the first acknowledgement that, you know, 
the red fox exists, right? And it and it was a really cool photograph of red fox like going through the forest. He just looked really like businesslike, and you know. But it, I remember when I saw that in the newspaper or online, it was like oh, the red fox is back, and yeah, it's just yeah. it really captures your imagination, right? This species that you thought was extinct, and then. There. And, you know, it seems like we're finding that out about a lot of species that we thought were gone is they're out there. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's it's a cool idea. They're out there. They're holding on. And what we can learn from their stat is how they're doing. I mean, they thought that about the Humboldt Martin, too. And so the the other interesting thing to point out is that this red fox is a subspecies. So there are invasive uh, red foxes in the United States. So someone might be like, well, why does anyone care about red fox? I have them in my backyard. Oh, I see. And this is a very distinct subspecies that is a high elevation specialist. There's Cascade red foxes too further north in the Cascades. And there's both of their populations are dwindling. So while there are red fox populations that are doing well, <laughs> they are, they're not necessarily native to you know, the the different habitats they're in. And these ones are native and that's what makes them so special. And that's the same with the Humboldt Martin. It's a subspecies of Martin. And a lot of people are like, well, who cares about Martin? I, you can see them anywhere and they're fine. But um, these Humboldt Martin live at low elevation in many cases and along the coastal range. And of course the coastal range up and down, you know, California, Oregon and Washington have experienced intense logging. Um, a lot of human development. And so there's these factors that these species have been trying to um, eck out a living. And part of, you know, our role out there is to help find data on these species. You know, no one's asking us to go out and find a really, you know, prominent species on the landscape because you can study them in other ways. So we're typically called in when it's like super rare, last ditch effort or, you know, endangered yeah. and threatened. And that's um, makes our job a little more challenging, but it also keeps it very interesting. Yeah, definitely. Have you, have you ever seen a, a Sierra red fox? Ooh, so I can't be certain, but this year, mm. um, so our surveys, I start our surveys at like three thirty, four thirty in the morning because um, up at 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, it gets really hot and Filson will start losing um, stamina, you know, high noon later. And so I want to make sure that he's happy and healthy for the search. So we start pretty early and we were trying to get to this one area really early in the morning and I couldn't, you know, the sun wasn't quite up, but we saw something flit across our path and it was definitely a canid. I had a bushy tail and um, it seemed pretty small. But the thing about red foxes and the other fascinating information that you can learn from some of these projects is um, what are some of the threats that they face or are they being outcompeted or what else is on the landscape? And so coyotes as, you know, and I don't know if this is true per se, but it is true in other landscapes as uh, global warming is affecting certain ecosystems, other species that used to dwell at lower elevations are able to move higher and live in, um, you know, eck out a living in other niches. So this is a very special niche for the red fox, but, you know, there's a lot of coyotes out there too. So I can't be 100% certain that it wasn't a coyote, but I'm about 88% positive I saw a Sierra Nevada red fox and I, I, I my whole body was tingling. I couldn't oh, sure. believe it. 
And, um, you know, Phil didn't even notice. I mean, just kept going with our day, but <laughs> I, I'll tell myself <laughs> that, that we saw one <laughs> just, uh-huh. just because it's so rare for us to see any of the wildlife we ever survey for. So that was pretty special. That's really neat. So speaking of tales, I was really amused by the the blog on the Rogue Dogs website, the tales, T-A-I-L-S, ha ha. Uh, <laughs> but, but one of the things that's really, that was really striking about some of those tales and also some of the things you're talking about today is just the physical requirements of this job not just for the dogs, but for the humans too, even like navigating. So, yeah. So tell us what that's like for, for training the humans to do this kind of work. Yeah. And I love that you asked this question because again, I I think so much of the emphasis tends to be on the dogs that we kind of don't think about the person side of it. And um, it is a unique field. So there, there's a lot of canine handling that, you know, takes place like I said earlier, all around, and it could be indoors and it could be, you know, outdoors, but you still, you know, you commute from your home, like a normal job and maybe you're searching for invasive mussels at a boat launch and you're not hiking 20 miles to find those invasive mussels. You don't need to, (laughs) but, um, what is interesting about our work and again, going back to the beginning and sharing our passion for, you know, the wilderness and, and these wild places is getting out in the field and navigating in lots of different environments. So whether it's hiking up to, you know, 11,000 foot mountains um, and hiking ridges that are windy and that are exposed to UV Um, and being careful about, you know, any type of weather blowing in at that height or whether we're serving in Northern Alberta in the middle of winter and there's three feet of snow and we have to be careful about um, how cold it is and how short the days are and um, making sure that we get back in time and that the dogs get a lot of rest or that we are plowing actually the way for them with our bodies. Like we're in that on that project, a lot of times we're leading the way and then looking behind us to see where their nose are pointing and then changing our direction that way. And, and, and you're doing this all off trail, right? That's the other thing that mostly, I mean, some of our projects, we do want to utilize roads and trails to find other individuals, but yeah, um, I'd say about uh, 70% or 60% of the work is off trail. It's really hard to be off trail. <laughs> it's really hard. It's much harder than you think. Yeah. When we were in Yosemite national park, the ch- the exciting part of that was getting to be in the backcountry because it is a mostly roadless area. But the other thing is the topography, you can look at, um, a map. So we download maps onto phones that show the topography and you can see, okay, this doesn't look that steep. And this looks like a saddle and red foxes like saddles and they like ridges. And we're also serving for cougar. So I'll, I'll head over here. But what, what happens on a paper map versus what happens out in, in reality <laughs> is very different. And there were several times that on those granite domes, we got cliffed out and it was too dangerous to go back up. And so we just had to continue going down. And it's one of those things where, um, like I said, Filson might be afraid of stumps, but he's super brave in other ways. And, you know, I would have to, I'd pat my shoulder and he'd come down onto my shoulders with his front feet and I'd reach behind him and I'd grab his harness that has a handle 
And then I'd pat my knees and then he would slowly come down onto my knees while I supported him. And then I would lower him. So he's now airborne to the ledge underneath me. Um, and then we'd continue going that way. And I'm not suggesting doing this. Um, it's not that I wanted to do this, but sometimes when you're in the field doing the work that we do, you know, you do find yourself in, in areas that it's challenging to get through. Or, you know, that we might need to crawl on our hands and knees to get through some of the dense, overgrown, invasive shrubbery to find these species that are still living in certain environments. So, yeah, it's very physical. I would say that we have a somewhat high turnaround, at least for rogues, just because of the requirements that we need for people to do field work. Sometimes we do have field houses but it's all temporary, you know, um, and a lot of times to save conservation dollars, we're living out of our cars so we can be closer, live on site and not have to be driving so much. Um, or like on the Yosemite project, you know, we're, we're backpacking in. And so we're camping, you know, 200 plus nights a year on whatever the weather is. So I think there's this romantic idea about our field and we always try to share with people interested in working with us. Like, it's not that we need to see that you've worked with a ton of dogs. It's that we need to know that you're comfortable working alone in the back country, yeah. uh, driving lots of different roads. Okay. Being solo, um, you know, other than your canine partner and, you know, you're going to miss things that other people might take for granted, having a more normal job. Uh, like maybe weddings or festivals or certain holidays spent with families, because even if we're not working those holidays, we're out in the field. It's not like you can leave. Oh, it's a three day weekend. So I'm going to go visit my family um, and I'll come back to work because we're out there. (laughs) So it's physical, it's mental, but also not everyone necessarily can teach themselves to learn dog. And so even if that person has all the physical requirements, has a ton of field work, if they just don't get how to connect with the dogs, it's also not going to work. And so that's part of the, 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 what we do too, is um, it's, it's multifaceted. Yeah. It seems really specialized, right? So it takes a really special person. (laughs) I'd say it's harder to find our human talent than our canine talent. There are more dogs in the shelters that we would love to adopt than we're able to as the tiny program that we are. And if we could, if this methodology gains confidence in the scientific field, which is part of our mission (laughs) Mm -hmm. in the work that we do, uh, possibly this field could grow. Um, And then we could hire, you know, more people and then adopt more dogs. And so that's ultimately the aim, um, but it's very slow going. And luckily and thankfully, many of our dogs have long careers too. So unless we get more projects, our team has been pretty small over the past 15 years ebbing and flowing, but mainly staying between five to to seven and 10 individuals at a time. Well, I would love to keep you longer because there's so many more questions that I have, but I know I, uh, I told you I wouldn't keep you longer than an hour, but before I let you go, Jennifer, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience, any resources or requests that you have for them? Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, this has just been wonderful, by the way, and I could keep talking with you forever. I love these <laughs> questions and it's just been so fabulous to talk to you. If people would like to learn more, we do have a website, roguedogs.org. 
We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Rogue Detection Teams. And there on our Facebook, we share a lot of articles from not just us, but um, just the dog world in general and science and wildlife conservation. So if that's of interest to people, it's not just uh, pictures of dogs. And then on our Instagram, um, we try to share a little bit more from the field. So what it's like to be a, a conservation detection dog handler. And we try to share resources there. So if you're not finding what you want on our website, I would highly suggest that you come follow us on Instagram. Um, and if you're more into the Twitter world, we're also there. I'm still learning how to how to tweet, <laughs> but uh, we'd love Aren't to, we grow all? Our, <laughs> <laughs> to grow our, our following there and our community there. And we're also on YouTube. And that's kind of where we share a little bit more videos from the field, what it's really like um, on the ground uh, doing this work. So it's not, it's nothing fancy. It's nothing professional. It's just us out there doing our thing. And so, yeah, come follow us, come learn. We're here. Um, and you can email me. I'm also the communications person at contact at roguedogs.org. And I'm happy to answer questions. And I'll include those links and that information in the show notes too. But Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful to listen to about the program and the work that you're doing. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's really oh. important and really special. Thank you. That that means a lot. You know, I feel very lucky, but it's nice to know it's um there are folks out there that appreciate this crazy field. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>